I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Dwight Turner, a psychotherapist and supervisor working in private practice in London and online. He's a senior lecturer in psychodynamic counseling and psychotherapy training at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Brighton in East Sussex. His new book is Mockingbird, Intersections of Privilege and Otherness in Counseling and Psychotherapy. For more, please visit his website, dwightturnercounseling.co.uk and follow him on Instagram and Twitter at dturner300. That's D-T-U-R. N-E-R 300 at Twitter and Instagram. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T film at YouTube or search for Rendering Unconscious podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Um, well, thank you for being here, Dr. Turner. I love your book. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for reading it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Um, one thing that's really different about this book than a lot of other books out there that I found is that, first of all, you talk a lot about personal experiences, which really makes it like more interesting to read, I feel, and also like clinical vignettes. It like brings it into like the realm of working with actual people, your personal experience, and not just feeling like a theoretical work. And it's also mm. written in such an accessible way. So mm. I feel like you don't have to be in the field to read it and really get something out of it. And it really could teach people um, that are just learning or aren't mm-hmm. in the field of psychology. Um, they could get a lot out of it. And also just the fact that it brings it into the field of psychology. So it brings yeah. issues yeah. into the field of like working with patients, but also 
training as a psychologist or therapist mm-hmm. um, and the changes that need to be made in the tra- training basically bring some aspects to light. Mm-hmm. Well, those are all done. Yeah, you, you, you spot those very well because all four of those are key, are key pillars. I was trying to aim to, to get all those in. You know, this part of my research was heuristic. So my own experience would have been on the page of, of my doctoral thesis when I, when I finished that back in 2017. And I wanted to include parts of that in this book as well, because I'm, you know, as a man of colour, son of an immigrant, living in, in, in the UK, you know, I have a, the, my experience of being an outsider is massive. So why leave that on the outside? And that's something that often as, as writers or as theorists or, or researchers, we can be accused of, okay, where's the person who experienced and what's happened there that gets left out somewhere? Um, making things accessible is, is yeah. the thing about academia, and you probably understand as well as, as I do, sometimes in making things very wordy, using long words and stuff like that, it can become quite exclusive. So the aim was always to, to, to write in a way that was both professional, but also accessible. And even that meant I had to explain a few bits of terminology along the way. The reason why I, I've, I've written things in a more, in, in an accessible way, is so that it, it, it does cross over into the world. You know, people can read it if they're just lay people off the street. I want to understand, okay, how does psychotherapy approach this sort of material? What are the unconscious processes? Maybe they've done some work around spirituality or whatever else, and they want to look at, okay, what is that? What, what, what might their dreams mean when they're exploring this material? That's what makes, that's what, what makes, makes, makes this book quite strong, so that they can read it too. It's not just for, for professionals. Yeah, absolutely. And I also love that you bring together, which I also hadn't seen before, intersectionality and Kimberly Crenshaw's work, and then individuation in the Jungian sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yes. You have no idea how hard that was to actually try and do. You're talking about the multiple, well, it, in a bizarre way, it's always like, well, yeah, I'm going to have to do it. So it's probably, it's not, it's not that we haven't done it before, so that I'm going to have to tie these things together. Because even within within psychotherapy, there were you know, things like family systems therapy and and, and so on, and, and um, John Rowan's work around subpersonalities. We've always we've always explored ideas of having multiple personalities within ourselves. Now to bring in an intersectional approach, which, as Audrey Lord says, we don't lead single issue lives. So she recognizes there that we actually we're actually a multiple of personalities there as well. Those two ideas are not that far apart. It just took for somebody with a lot of time on his hands, like myself, to actually create that bridge between the two worlds. And I love the fact that intersectionality makes difference and diversity and privilege and otherness um, complicated, but also richer and more inclusive accordingly. We're actually start, hopefully this book starts to help readers to approach their identities in a more holistic way. They're not just one or two key aspects as defined by the patriarchy or as defined by their, their, their race or gender or sexuality. We are, we're, we're a complex composite of very different parts and, and, and which all interact together. That's what these two worlds actually bring up in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And also it brings up like depending on situations, like your place of identity, um, your privilege or otherness is like in flux constantly, depending on the situation that you're in and who's projecting onto you or those sort of things. Yeah, totally. Yeah, How I am at home um, with my daughter, for example, is going to be vastly different to how I am when I'm at work amongst my students, it's going to be vastly different to when I'm out walking through the streets of, of Eastbourne. It could even be, you know, 
if I'm in Eastbourne, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. It's a very, it's not a very multicultural town, or where I'm in, in the south of England, I should say. Um, but if I move just like half an hour to the west towards Brighton, there's a lot more diversity there. So therefore, how I'm seen is it's, it's vastly different. So the parts of my identity which might shine through are going to be very different to, from from just through that through that movement from one city to, to, to another. We you know we go through this change all the time, and sometimes the the, the need to project onto another they are this is more about our own discomfort with, in, with constantly encountering difference than it is with the fact that that's who they are. Um, we underestimate, in my view, the anxiety that comes up when we encounter something which is unusual to us or that we don't quite understand. And stereotyping on objectification and othering, term I use a lot in the book, are actually ways of trying to um, avoid that discomfort, if you like, and make that other, it's like we, we don't like to sit with not knowing. So, so to speak, and that can that includes other people too. Yeah, absolutely, and also you point out that like human subjectivity is in part like based on this sort of othering of like defining ourselves on what we are not from when we're the time of really little children. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, the idea about um, an intersectional approach is you know, there are three, I think, three key key tenets that um, Patricia Hills Collins, Collins talks about: um, race, uh, gender, and um, class actually if you, if you locate those those three and these are all at least in part socially constructed so the idea about about you know, whiteness or blackness being defined by whiteness is, is which it shows that actually this is a culturally created sort of idea of identity versus another um de Beauvoir wrote about this with, with regards to, to gender where she wrote a lot about how the sociological aspects of, of, of what it was to be a man and what it was not to be a man um, therefore define what it was to be a woman. So anything that was not seen as masculine was then deemed to be feminine in a way. These are hugely, um, they're very well embedded, these ideas within culture, but they're also hugely flawed because they don't allow oneself to actually be way more than, than, they're actually, than the actual definitions. You know, we see it a lot with ideas around toxic masculinity, for example, the idea that you've got to be a certain way to be a man. You can't embody characteristics which are seen as more feminine because uh, if that if, if that's the case and you're seen as weak um or ideas about what it is to be to be of color um versus okay can one then have be successful as a man of color if you're if you're seen as successful then you're seen as maybe you're, you're, you're too white or you're you're playing up in some way and vice versa these constructs become quite limiting and in some ways self-othering so that social logical aspect needs to be in the book as well um to, to, as, as a form of exploration yeah, exactly. And I feel like in therapy, a lot of times or analysis, a lot of times people have to go through a process of breaking down these kinds of ideas or constructs that have been placed upon them that they've, they, they've internalized and like learned to identify with. But then they're like, wait, maybe I don't really feel that way about myself or I don't really identify with that. But it just became kind of second nature where it wasn't even questioned for such a long time. But you're making a great point there. It becomes second nature because they come in so early on in life. You mentioned children earlier on. You know, a, a, a child from a working class background will, will have taken in what it is to be working class from the moment he's probably starting to walk and start to become socialized in, in the world. So we walk with that to then, <clears throat> to then separate out from that. This is why I think individuation becomes quite important. That inner drive to be more than one's conditioning that makes sense. That inner drive, for example, if you look at class, so from a working class background, being able to find one's voice as a working class man and not feel silenced in society. 
that's a massive step that often lots of people finally have to go through. And I know I, I did it as well. So being able to write the book, for example, or give talks, whatever else, has been a huge learning curve for myself in finding my voice and saying what I need to say and not feeling ashamed of that in some way. So moving beyond my conditioning where I was silenced and had to sit in the corner and just be the good working class, son of an immigrant, that boy, whatever it might be, um, in a way. So I think you're right. Sometimes as therapists, we, we work a lot with that part of a client that wants to be more than just these categorizations that have been told to be, in a way. It can be quite powerful. Absolutely. And even as a professional, I found like reading you, talking more about your personal experiences, helping me feel more comfortable talking about it as well. Because I, you know, <laughs> doing this podcast, for example, I get really like, what have I revealed about myself, you know, but there's also this kind of internalized shame, like my father's a construction worker. And it's like, you know, when you get into these spaces, you know, they, they, other people, and like, of course, I'm, I know it's much more for people like I've had students of color, black students Mm -hmm. come on and talk about like, how hard it is to be in these psychological spaces. But that's the thing with like what the British have Mm -hmm. done, for example, kind of in the belly of the beast they're like they are yeah, the irish yeah. right next door the irish people have lost their language it's like mm-hmm. they're very much into the different accents within england right and like mm-hmm. what your accent says about you about where you're from and it's like they it's done to such a degree it's just like kind of endless i think it's very what it's, it's very well put the more posh your accent and the more accepted you are so if you have any, any sort of slang or or you talk like from the from the East End or from Northern England. That's before, that's before we even get to an Irish or Welsh or Scottish sort of sort of accent. Then you're seen as some sort of outsider in, in those ways. So everything rotates around one idea about what it is to be in this case English or what it is to be, I suppose, American. That would probably be similar similar examples there as well. Um, class has a huge role to play in a lot of this, you know. You mentioned your dad being a construction worker. Mine, mine was a, a black cab driver for a number of years when I was a kid. So, and he, you know, he did it. He worked very hard. He, he provided and so on. He did, he did what he needed to do. But um, moving from from having to hold the internalized shame of of having a, a black cab driver as a father, been, and also I was sent to a, a, a fee paying school in London that was, yeah, was pretty well off. It's, I'm going to do this on your podcast, I suppose. Um, I won't name the school, but one of the, the pupils that went to the school was uh, a famous actor, you know, one of those sort of posh English actors that, that then ended up in, in many of those romantic comedies of the 1980s and 90s, that sort of, sort of, sort of person. So I went to a pretty, pretty decent school, but I struggled because it, I came from a different background to many other people there. And it was very difficult to, to find my feet and find my voice when I wasn't really accepted, not just because of my colour, but because of my, my class as well, being sort of an immigrant. And that's something I've often struggled with an awful lot. You know, even when I write blogs now, I, I have a, a core selection of friends, good friends who I actually run these blogs by every now and again. So am I revealing too much? Because I'm not sure if I'm going too far. Whereas they're saying, okay, who's this for? Yes, you're, it, it's t- it touches a nerve for people, publish it. Because then I end up, end up doing stuff. I have to go through a real process of what's the right amount of myself to show Whereas lots of other people don't have to do that. They just write what they're going to write, put it on the page, and it's all well and good. Um, the proof of the pudding for myself is when I've written something and somebody come back, comes back and says, thank you for that, that really resonated for me, then I know I'm, at, I'm on the right sort of sort of level, if that makes sense. But it's a whole learned process of disentangling myself from the, the silencing that goes with being of a, a lower class um, 
within the, that sort of lower class structure. Yeah, and I remember when I was in psychoanalytic training, I was working in a hospital during the day and then had the private practice in the evening and psychoanalytic classes at night. And, you know, one of my supervisors was basically like, well, why are you still working in this hospital? And I was like, because I need a paycheck. <laughs> like, like, what do you mean? Why am I still working? You know? And she actually said, I remember she said, oh, so you're actually dependent on your paycheck. And I was like, who's not dependent on their paycheck? And then that's just when I had this realization of like what world I was in. It's like, what yeah. world am I in that someone is not dependent on their paycheck? You know, that's like, I don't even know. <laughs> oh, I, I feel for you. I totally empathize with you. I, I, yeah. Same as yourself, I used to work for five days and sometimes I had to do courses on the weekend and had no social life. because I was so busy working and studying at, at some point. Um, and it does give you a different, it gave me a different take on, when I finished, like yourself, I, had to, I then had to make money for what I was doing. So I, I yeah, worked for charities and stuff like that and then set up a private practice. And but it does give me, it gave me some work ethic around being a therapist, which I don't think I would have had if I'd have come from a certain like, type of privilege, it doesn't always work that way, but I don't think I would have had it the same sort of way. I think I had to go through that struggle to make it, to, be, to end up where I am now, put it that way. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I remember those days well, painful, long hours sat on trains, going, going through London, um, all over the place. It's, oh. Don't yeah. miss it. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't miss it. From London to move to the South Coast, where I'm by the sea, I'm going to sit, sit and just watch the world go by. I've done my bit. But then I, I can empathize with anybody who's, who's still going through that, be it psychology trainings or psychotherapy trainings. I, I get it. It's hard, hard work. And actually, in a way, the, the courses don't, they don't recognize how difficult it can be for some students to actually have to, you know, you know what they're giving up along the way to actually make this work. And yeah, everybody's, everybody's cup of suffering is different. Um, there's no right or wrong with it. But the struggles of, of some people who, who are from marginalized groups, I think get, they, they get um, ignored in a way that perhaps for others, it, it's, it's not the same. So you know, the working classes, what are they having to go through to get to this level that, that, that we're at now? Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think, you know, of course, becoming a therapist, I'm used to like, I'm comfortable not revealing much about myself and just listening, focusing on everyone else and being like, let me make you feel better. You know, that's, that's kind of how I formed uh, defensively, I think. But mm. like in revealing more, it's like, well, what's my goal here? My goal is to make these ideas more accessible to more people and to get out of those really like tiny elite communities, because I feel mm. like it's such a disservice to psychoanalytic thinking to have them like hold up in these tiny places that most people don't access that don't don't have access to um and so i think it, like i want to go back to more of a idea of like psychoanalysis for all like like freud did after mm -hmm. the first world war when he saw mm -hmm. like how much destruction there was and mm -hmm. wanted it to like be have more like free clinics and things like mm -hmm. that and so in order to do that it's i think it's helpful for people to be able to relate and to share our experiences so that people can feel like not so alone in their their, their journey i think it's very well put i, I there's not much like more can add to that. i think you're quite right that that yeah, psychotherapy has we fall into a bit, of a, a bit of a trap of in becoming exclusive, therefore separate to community, um, if you like, and they they need our help. Um, and I think you're quite right. The more that we can do in talking about our experience, 
doesn't matter what it is. Like, you know, I'm talking about it as a person of color, but there are plenty of people from the LGBTQ community, for example, who've read the book and really um, respect it, and you know, are, are talking about it with regards from their perspective. Doesn't matter what modality that they are. There are people, colleagues of mine, who are in the TA sort of field, for example, who are exploring the book from their, within their sort of modality. They're, they're exploring their stories based around this idea that we can talk about difference and, and, and privilege and otherness and where we're coming from, where we've, we've been, we felt marginalized or put down or whatever it might be, in order that somebody else can actually then um, empathize with that and feel safe enough to actually explore that in, in, in work with us. You know, my clients, because they know that I, this is what I do, a lot of my clients will bring this material to the therapy room. Not all, but the vast majority do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I also appreciate you brought in here in the book as well about how, you know, it has been kind of a, a trope in, in psychology and psychoanalytic circles that you're not supposed to get political. Oh. And I think that's been such a disservice, yeah. period. It's like, yeah, because of course, like, like you said in the book as well, like some people don't have that option. And like, also, even if you do have that option, why, why would you take that stance? Cause uh, you know, not saying anything is a stance in itself. Yeah, totally agree. And I think, cause I wrote this book, um, well, this book has come out during the pandemic, but I finished writing it at, at around the time the pandemic started. And I think the, the idea that we can't, you know, that the political doesn't influence our clients is perhaps even more prevalent now with the pandemic, with George Floyd, with the, with the rise to you know, the, the continued fight for equal rights for different groups, um, to, to suggest that the political therefore doesn't have an impact on our client base is, in a, in a way, it, it's re-traumatizing for so many different groups. You know, you just have to look at the political fallout from, from the Sarah Everard murder and the vigils that were held afterwards here in the UK um, and the Me Too movement in the, in the US. These are things that clients will talk about or need some space to be able to explore in, in within the therapeutic space you know it's when we uh first met, i think it was around the time of, of the george floyd murder for example that had huge political ramifications here in the uk there was a report out earlier on this year denying the existence of institutional racism um and that's the number of clients i've had who, who or even i've done it in my own therapy talked about okay what is that like as a man of color who knows it exists to then be led by a government who are denying the existence of something which is so embedded within white supremacy in, in british culture as people english culture to such an extent that actually it impacts on anybody who is not of the white british upper classes um that that you know it's, it's a bit like a form of cultural gaslighting that we only to go through, and that's going to have a, a detrimental psychological impact on the other. And that's explored in the book to some degree. What to, you know, to, it, to survive that, we have to kill off something within ourselves. Um, to work through that is actually quite painful and difficult. To how can one retain one's sense of authenticity whilst dealing with an environment whereby your, your experiences are denied from the very highest of echelons of government? Yeah, exactly. It's it's embedded in the systems, and mm. um, yeah, there's I, I don't understand everything going on in the U.S. because I don't get all the news here unless I like really seek it out. But I've been recently exploring critical race theory because I've heard this like explosion of like them not wanting to teach it in schools and not wanting to teach it. I'm like, what is this mm -hmm. argument about? And then from everything I read, it's like, oh, they just don't want to teach the truth. <laughs> to say yeah. they don't want to teach the truth about this. Yeah. yeah. I think that's quite right. I think mean, they, they don't want to teach, teach the truth. And yeah, this, it, it spills it over into the UK as well. And I think the thing about the report I just mentioned, it's called the Seeley Report, 
um, the UN criticized it because it, as a way of, because what they were actually trying to do was actually um, promote white supremacy in the UK. So I think you're quite right. There's a denial of the truth. It's not, you know, critical race theory is not there to, to, to denigrate a whole group of people. What it's there is to say that actually there's a bigger truth here and here are these aspects and actually not talking about this, then you are actually doing a hugely, um, causing a, um, actually you're causing those people who are of the majority a lot of psychological pain because they don't know much of what they should know about their culture. They don't know about their true place in the, in, in the world. You don't have to promote a system of supremacy in order to exist safely. That makes sense. You don't have to promote a system of um, of, a, of a exclusivity in order to survive. And yet, that's what certain groups feel they need to do in order to dominate, and therefore feel feel a sense of security. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know if you're familiar with Sheldon George's work, but he wrote a book uh, that came out last year called Trauma and Race, and um, <laughs> He talks about this as well, like people's mm -hmm. identity is so mm -hmm. bound up on like what they are not or what they perceive mm -hmm. and that they, it feels like they're almost being annihilated when that's challenged that they feel like they completely are like losing their sense of self and they're so mm -hmm. defensive about it and like mm -hmm. terrified to even like, yeah, look at themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, this is why I think issues around race and gender um, and sexuality and even class need to be explored in a collective environment. Because, you know, inevitably, if, if, you, if, you know, we've all heard the stories, okay, you have a workshop on, let's say, race, and somebody who's of colour talks about their experience, and somebody who's white and acts out in some sort of way, you're quite right, it's because of that, that's, you know, the white, the white virginity phrase, although well put, I think doesn't go far enough. That sort of sense of annihilation, I think, speaks to it a lot more succinctly, in that, yeah, a sense of white identity is then fractured in that moment, or it's really challenged. Um, but because these are binary constructs, then if one's able to explore them in a collective, then actually whatever challenge comes up from one side is held within the other as well, and vice versa. That makes sense. That it's this is, none of this is anything new. You know, Hegel talked about the master-slave sort of dialectic. Fanon looked at this as well. The idea is that actually, for to to read to write this sort of pendulum, both parts need to either give and take something along the way. And identity is no different to that. Whatever's been projected from whiteness onto blackness, so that it, it can say that's what I'm not, needs to return home. And the same way for blackness, that makes sense. So the authority, the power that perhaps I have to divest myself of in order to exist safely has to return back to me. I'd even go even further than that, you know, if I could use you know, individuation, suggest that that part will come home whether I want to want it to or not. It will keep knocking on the door until I accept it. Um, and that's where the power of dreams and the unconscious then comes into play somewhere. Oh, I had to read this part because I, I have, this is one of those books that you have like so many parts underlined. It's just like, <laughs> like this. But I did, I was looking at this other day again. It's so good. Uh, psychological supremacy versus individuation. This mm -hmm. is so good. Given the intersectional nature of identity, then it could appear that any route towards a true sense of self and authenticity is an impossible goal. This is why so many reject the call to action as positive and myths such as the hero's journey. The mm. complexity and near impossibility of the task of individuation make it seem a most daunting route to follow. Yet, as many may question, does this mean that such a route towards individuation should not be undertaken? My answer is that we do not actually have a choice in the matter that any question of this type is actually flawed. The self and its libidinous drive 
force us to constantly move towards being more real. And that process will inevitably result in us exploring our shadows and encountering the projections we have upon the external other. And you go on and talk about how like what's in the shadow is not the same for everyone as well. It depends on kind of what aspects have been sort of cut off or, mm -hmm. or repressed. So I think what I like about that, yeah, I, I wrote this a while, I get to think about it in, in a bit more detail. Yeah? Um, what I like about that, that, that sort of statement there is to follow on from you, yeah, what's in the shadow, you're quite right, it's not the same for everybody else, but there's still gonna be archetypes at the end of that, that um, in the depths, let's call it that, let's use you know, Jung's sort of, sort of terminology. But how we experience those archetypes becomes quite phenomenological. So you know, the archetype of the hero will be experienced in, by different people in vastly different ways. Um, I do believe that, that, there's, that this innate drive towards individuation it sits within all of us, and some of us will hear it and some of us will, will, will deny it even exists. Um, and we're drawn to a form of self-action to actually separate out from whatever conditioning we, we've had as we walk through life. I think, um, I think the struggle, maybe one that I, I, I don't write quite enough about, the struggle to get to that point is really one of the most important parts of it. It's not just about getting from A to B. It's about that, that place in between whereby it's difficult, it's painful. And um, individuation, as I talked about there, is often possibly something which is nice and fluffy. You, 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 you explore your dreams, you do some psychological work, you get to the end of the rainbow, you live happily ever after. And yet, in my personal view, I think it's a very painful, difficult, strenuous process to go through that can lead to multiple processes of, of, of or periods of breaking down to break through into something new um you know it's even if you just look at the notion of alchemy as Jung talks about it the ideas of, of alchemical processes if you're forging a using the metaphor if you're forging a knife uh, or a sword in the fires and in the waters uh of a, of a what's his name I can't what they're called but if, you, if you're making that that sort of instrument there's a lot of pain and power that, and, and, and that, needs to, that one needs to go through in order to actually construct that, that implement to be able to use it better in, in, in life. It's not a nice fluffy process. We sort of have no, no choice in the matter. And we have to sort of walk, walk that, that, that sort of path. And I also think on a collective level, it becomes even more pronounced how difficult it is to actually move along that road. You know, I, I've written about it in, in the book, 2012, for example, here in the UK, the Olympics, we were living, in the, we were basking in this post-racial society, this idea that everything was now over with regards to race and difference. And then within four years, you've got the rise of, of nationalism, both in the States and the UK and then across Europe as, as well in different areas. And things then separate, things don't think they move backwards. And as Hegel talks about in his writing, culture doesn't move along a straight path. It will meander like a river. Um, as it, as it winds its way down towards the sea. And sometimes in that meandering, it's painful, it's difficult. Psychotherapy, psychology, the roots towards individuation, personal and collective, they're challenging, but we have no choice. Yeah, exactly, because you gotta do the work, but it is work. And that's the yeah. thing too, when people go into therapy thinking that they're gonna be like meditate and feel nice all of a sudden, it's really not that way, <laughs> at, least, at least for a while. No, I remember no. my first like really good analysis. Mm. Um, I I would sit outside in my car for, like for half an hour every day and cry after analysis before I could even get it together to drive my car home. I remember that. So, 
Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, again, I can empathise. That journey to and from therapy for me in the early days was massive, as big as I'd actually been in the therapy itself. Because, yeah, for me, I'd be writing my diary. I'd sit in a cafe and write in my diary before we went to therapy, therapy, lots of tears, whatever else, and then cope. On my way home on the train, just write some more, just so I could formulate or just collect whatever I'd learned that, about myself during that session. Um, and then... You know, then there are all the dreams that I, I write about because, you know, I, in there is like a, a small drop in the ocean of, of all the dreams that I have. I, I can literally dream one or two times a night if I'm not careful, which therefore means I don't always get as much sleep as I would like, to be honest, but that's a whole different conversation. So. <laughs> well, I love that you bring your dreams in too. I watched you did a keynote, I guess, last year or two years ago, um, and you talked about different dreams you had had in your own process and kind of use examples in that way and that's that was so nice to hear and I love how you said like don't worry these were not like all in the same week this is like over a year also <laughs> but it's been really intense sure, sure. <laughs> yeah well yeah <laughs> but there yeah, this is the thing this is the beautiful thing about dreams and, and understanding that those on you know we talked about archetypes and unconscious processes and stuff like that and dreams you know you can talk about them, the, the royal road to the unconscious and they are they're a wonderful way of exploring just what we're going through and they hold um, they will hold the spit off parts of ourselves. So if we've had to conform to a way of being as a woman or as a man of color, whatever it happens to be, that um, atrophy, part of ourself will sit there in the unconscious waiting to be known in some way. It will, it will always play itself out. I remember having a dream not so long ago whereby I was, um, I was uh, in Ireland and I'm a dog basically. I'm at a dog show. I'm, I am a dog at a dog show, basically. I'm waiting for somebody who's white and European or English, I think it was, to come and judge me and assess me as being appropriate for, I don't know, whatever it was. So I'm literally sit, sitting there all day long. And I remember exploring this with my, with my therapist. And of course, Ireland, yeah, and, and, and Black, the Irish and, and, and Black people, we have a very close sort of history here in the, in the, in the UK. We, we were all excluded. Was it no Blacks, no Irish, no dogs? Was the signs that you'd find on, on doors of lodging houses and whatever else here in the UK back in the 50s and 60s. Um, so that idea about marginalization was is, is part of our collective history. It's also why the Irish and, 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 and black people in the UK get on so well, to be honest, in this day and age. Um, and it's, yeah, so that internalized um, cultural inferiority complex, maybe it's that, maybe it's not, it, that, that, that was playing itself out in the dream at that point. And it's something I had to work with and work through to actually pull out something more um reparative put it that point mm -hmm. yeah that just got me thinking of dog shows in general and what a weird thing that is what <laughs> dog shows in general what that how weird that is that people oh, do that is, to it? people and dogs so like put yeah, them yeah uh, they are strange aren't they, they I, i'm not yeah I, people watch crusts like it's the it's a very english thing watching crusts i don't quite get it i don't actually understand what the dogs are being assessed on or anything like that so just don't watch it it's a bizarre thing. I feel like equestrianism. I don't quite understand it. It's one of those weird sort of, yeah, what's that all about? So, it's, Yeah, it's inbreeding. They inbreed the dogs and they basically mm. make their traits, their recessive traits more prominent and it makes the dogs really weird. It <laughs> mm. doesn't mm. seem healthy. Doesn't no, seem healthy. no. That's a tangent though, but just, just <laughs> the visual of that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Well, okay, well, I can hear with it. But this is the thing, that's no different to, um, I guess, slavery, where, where certain, 
you had the you had the stud slave and so on who was there who was there his his, his job was to actually impregnate some of the some of the women on 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 the, on the and the plantation and so on. So it's like a form of breeding. You're controlling the, the, the nature of, of that group. In that case, it's dogs. And in, in my case, it would have been persons of color. So you're, you're seeing them, there's an objectification of the other and a denial of their own right to exist as an entity without influence from humanity, if, if you like, or even within humanity, or even still out there, humanity even exists. Um, and a, an attempt to control and assess their work accordingly. Which I think is, you know, we stopped off joking about. It. There is something a little darker underneath it. If you think about it, a little bit. Yeah, there absolutely is. Probably why I don't watch. I just can't do it to myself. So. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big I don't even know what to say after that. <laughs> it's just like the more. Yeah, I think that you know. I don't know. Just the the more it's all even worse. History, as much as we know how horrible it has been for mm. most people, um, it's even worse. It's even worse than people like want to admit or look mm. at. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that because I think there's often an attempt to sanitize history and to make it all very palatable. Even you know, media is a great example of this, and films where okay. Historical films, which often miss out the, the darker psychological um, experiences of, of people, doesn't matter what the, what the group is, just to present something which is more, I don't know, palatable, nice, fluffy. But then we all start to believe that facet of, his, of history as it's seen on the screen. Um, there was a massive uproar. What's the film? 1917, I think it was, the, 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 the war movie, whereby I think there, was a, there were a couple of people here in the UK who hadn't, they weren't aware that there were, Sikh soldiers who served in World War One, as part of it, sort of out of the colonies, and had assumed that that what was seen on the film was was a PC version of of, of history, whereas actually what was on the film was act, was a closer representation of the truth. Um, back to that, that we talked about earlier on, so that I think we teach something in schools which is very sanitized and denies the realities of of the inhumanity. Yeah, the inhumanity of man against other men, women, whoever, or minorities, whatever it might be, because that and that's part of history. Makes sense. Like I had to do a lot of digging around race, for example, in my outside of school, in my twenties, early twenties, when I was living in in Germany, in the military, my military days, at U.S. Air Force camps. Strangely enough, interestingly enough, because um, they were the ones who sold books. You know, about Martin Luther King and, and, and Malcolm X and so on and, and stuff like that. And they were the ones where I felt most at home. So, and even that was flawed in a way. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I remember being taught in school, like you were talking about before, like, you know, these are masculine traits and these are feminine traits. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and like, I remember being taught that in school where they like had a list of like masculine is active, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And women mm. is like passive and, mm -hmm. and like having like lists of it, all these like diagrams of things. And also like, you know, the, the men and, and then like the minorities and women. And it's like this, this perspective is like, you know, cis male heterosexual white perspective is like okay. such a small fraction of the population and it has somehow inserted itself as being like the dominant perspective and other like everything else besides it. And it's kind of mm. mind boggling. It is, I think you're quite right. It, it's such a small part of the population. 
I think the danger is in, in, in forgetting that, that it, that's been going on for such a long time that it's very difficult because we've all we all drink that in in some way. We all take on the idea that okay, it's what it is to be a man, it's what it is to be a woman, it's what it is to be black or white or straight or, or or gay, whatever it might be, and we enact that in in, in some way. Um, and there's a comfort in that, but until there's a comfort until until we start to wake up to well, hang on, I don't like what I've become or what I'm not allowed to be, or why can't I be that? Or when we start to question these things, you don't have to think, you just have to be it when it's, when it's imposed upon you. When we start to think and challenge it, then, you know, either we're, we're, we're put back in our place, that can happen, um, or we, we strike out and find a group whereby we can, you know, where we can be more ourselves. Or what can also happen is we're just left on our own. And that can be quite um, difficult to then feel the level of loneliness that comes with trying to walk your own path, so to speak. Yeah, and I think it's most disturbing and why I'm glad that you so much wrote about this like in psychology and counseling um, because I feel find it extra disturbing that it's perpetuated in psychology, in schools and training and in mm -hmm. therapy itself, I guess, as well, because uh, you would hope that that would at least be an area that is not perpetuating this because you're supposed to be like exploring the mind and the unconscious and like all mm -hmm. the facets of humans rather mm -hmm. than like continuing to put people in these boxes. But of course, like one side of psychotherapy is like all these labels and diagnoses and, and categorizations mm -hmm. of people, mm -hmm. what's, what's healthy and what's normal and what's not. Yeah, totally agree. You're quite right. We, we're so wedded to the, the safety of categorizations and so that we, we we stop questioning what those what what that, what that might be doing to our clients and so what it might mean for them, um, and I think that it feels like there's a return to curiosity that's coming up right now. We, we, it, there's a to being able to be, be a bit more curious about these and risking getting stuff wrong or or, or and so on with our, with our clients, but there's a I'm not one, one of those things. I don't mind if we're asking questions and not getting the, the, the you know the right response, because um, at least we're exploring the material. And sometimes, we're, if, if in a good enough therapeutic or, or psychological relationship with our clients, there's room to actually co-create a meaning that actually resonates more for the client than it does needs to for us. My fear is that I think you're quite right that, that in our discomfort with not using the label, not being so wedded to the label. We just other our clients across the board and they don't get the service that they deserve from us ultimately. And that can happen. That can happen, is my sense. Do you have any advice or anything to say to students that might be listening, that might be people of color or people that are struggling with these kinds of issues? The simple point is this, be yourself. But I'm also very aware that being yourself can actually bring up lots of friction between yourself and the organization. So being yourself could be something that one explores in one's therapy. Um, I would always do that. And to work out, okay, when is the right time to be oneself? And when is it more about pushing back because we're in a rebellious frame of mind or, or, or whatever it might be, that can happen. But the more authentic we can be, then the more of the change we can be within, within, our, within those short training organizations. If I give, for another piece of advice, find your support network. This is a difficult journey to undergo as a, as a trainee or even as a 
experienced therapists or psychologists. But find your support network to take you through this. You don't have to do this on your own. You're going to find there are people alongside you who will be struggling with the same sorts of things, even if it's not the same sort of um, characteristic as yourself. There'll be those who will be struggling with being an outsider in some way. So track them down. Work, work, walk alongside them, is my view. Yeah, and it is true that um, it's great that students nowadays have, you know, podcasts like this and YouTube yeah. videos, and they can find more information and outside perspectives than just the mm. ones in their schools or institutes. Um, because just, you know, I was in grad school for 2002, 2007, mm. and then I did analytic training 2010 to 2013. Mm. And even just that long ago, there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't all of this, these resources. And it was just mm -hmm. kind of like the school's perspective. And you also talk about this. There's not really diversity training. It's like when I was in school, it was like they had like multicultural lens, like look at through a multicultural lens, but it was still very like stereotyping, you know. Exactly. And, and being in Miami, it's like, okay, well, Haitian people, they have this in this, their culture. So like if they believe in like talking to their grandparents, then it's okay. Don't, you know, send them to the hospital. They're not mm -hmm. pathological. And like, you know, this, but it was like all very much like stereotypes of different cultures mm -hmm. and not really an intersectional or kind of holistic view of people. Mm -hmm. I think you're quite right. Yeah. This, it's, it's been a more recent sort of development by being here. I trained around 10, 10 times a year and the, the two hours on difference in diversity and a four year course that I undertook was just, was really poor. Um, and also, yeah, but if you want more, one more piece of advice for, you, for any sort of students, be political, find your political self. That'll be in there somewhere as well. So do the work around that, bring that in, don't leave it outside. Yeah, because really, I feel like this intersectionality should be much more central to training um, in general, and just mm -hmm. looking at people as more complex and more, um, yeah, more multi-layered, and also mm -hmm. thinking of this this idea of like that you're going to have different feel differently in different situations. Just exploring mm -hmm. these all these different aspects of how identity is kind of multi-layered, complicated, and constantly in flux, um, mm -hmm. and how much people, other people's projections. Um, are really a part of it like you know it's so clear in some instances how much like like people who are like staunchly anti-gay or anti-trans it's like clearly this is something about themselves you know that yeah. they aren't dealing yeah. with that they're just like going and attacking other people about otherwise like why why would you care what somebody's sexual orientation is like what does mm -hmm. that have to do with you why are you so against it you know and then people really need to also keep that in mind as well people are really adamantly anti-something um, that probably says more about them than it does about you. Totally agree. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. The number of stories I've heard about who are anti-gay who then come out later on, it's become one of those sort of cliched um, stories, really, and, it's, and we'd all just roll our eyes. Here we go again. It's, yeah, it's it's sad and it's sickening because often, often they do a lot of damage along the way. You might say, you kind of eradicate them, which you can't, you can't change. Yeah, and I feel like an intersectional approach also could mm. help people who would get defensive, you know, maybe not be so defensive if you're like coming sure. to, to people. Not only is it true that the, this intersectionality, but also it's a great way to present to people so that they can feel like, okay, I also have aspects that I might feel othered and aspects where I'm privileged mm. rather mm. than it being like mm. one or the other. Mm. Totally agree. hear yeah. that more. Yeah, I think we need to we need to explore that more. We're, we're very because the political sphere has has narrowed down what it is to be the other. What this does is actually take this. It, it, it 
like you said, like you said, it makes it way more complex. It actually brings in those experiences. Let's say from childhood, being marginalized because you're too short or because you've got red hair. These are things which are not uncommon for kids, and it can leave a real scar within one within, within, in one psyche that that needs to be healed. But also, can be a great route to under, if, you, if you can if you can empathize with that part of that wounded part of ourselves, then you're sort of on the road to empathize with somebody else's experience of being an outsider as well. Um, so I think you, yeah, one of the aims that I have hopefully for, for, for futures that courses then start to take this more holistic exploration around intersectional difference and not just try and tick box it off as part of a course somewhere right like you said like not not uh, have it just be these categories that are from yeah. like certain political acts or things that have been yeah. put into law but the th things that are much more multifaceted yeah and i, I think well, some of the four um the founding fathers of psychology and psychotherapy they did lots of this work ages ago. This is nothing new, but it somehow got lost. Don't know how that would have happened. It needs to come back here, is my view. Yeah, it is kind of bringing it back to where it, where it began, um, but in a, in a much more uh, yeah, multifaceted and useful way. Yeah. And also, yeah. I feel like the epitome of the problem was like ego psychology when it became something where you're, you're supposed to identify with the ego of the analyst and internalize that. That's like very, yeah, yeah. white male, cis yeah. Yeah. kind of peak for, for analytical work. I think you're quite right on that score, yeah, which then sets up a whole, yeah, it normalizes white, yeah, white male, cis, yeah, I can't add anything more. There is no chance of being anything different than that, than that therapist in, the, in that moment. That's quite, it's, and that still exists in some ways to this day. Yeah, I had a, my training analyst was like that. That's in, uh, oh. I had to have another analysis after my training analysis to <laughs> undo the damage from my training analysis because I was just like, I don't want to integrate you. <laughs> <laughs> Be yourself. No, thank oh, you. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh. So it still exists, so that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, sadly, yeah, yeah. Well, I think hopefully in a generation or two, that will have well, not died away, become more marginalized. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Podcasts like this help, put it that way. Uh, I think so. I wish I had this podcast when I was in training. <laughs> Same here. Same here. But like you said, there was nothing out there. And I love, I love that I get to recommend podcasts to students now and say, well, if you listen to, listen to your podcast or, or whatever it might be, listening to you in life, or whatever podcasts are out there, to have a listen to, to alternative contemporary views around psychology and psychotherapy there's a wealth of material in there which is great stuff yeah and i try to have other podcast hosts on to introduce people to other podcasts and i had someone recently say like i'd like to start my own podcast i'm like please do like i, mm -hmm. I love that there's so much material out there for students um is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap up do you have anything coming up or anything like that uh, well, I am always, always, well, you, you know me, I'm always on Twitter doing something dark, so, <laughs> so I'm always tweeting something. I think there's going to be a number of good, uh, good talks and presentations coming up in the autumn into early next year around intersectional approaches to difference and otherness, so please follow me on Twitter and the D Turner, was it at D Turner 300, I think it is. Um, there's my website, if you hear this podcast and want to, to subscribe to my website, then please do, because I do a regular, regular newsletter about four times a year. There'll be papers. I'm, yeah, I can't stop writing. There's, you know, I, I in your blog. I know there'll always be stuff that I've got to write about. So there'll be things you can follow me on there. But please, yeah, get in touch if ever you need, if ever I can be of assistance in any way. Always a pleasure. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here.
Thank you. Absolute pleasure, as always, to come back and talk to you. So, brilliant. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Dwight Turner. Be sure to check out his new book, Mockingbird, Intersections of Privilege and Otherness in Counseling and Psychotherapy from Rutledge 2021. You can check out his website, dwightturnercounseling.co.uk and follow him at Instagram and Twitter at dturner300. You can also listen to our previous conversation, Rendering Unconscious, episode number 95. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. And now, follow my voice for Hatshepsut from the album of the same name, a collaboration between myself and Per Olund, available at Highbrow Low Life's Bandcamp page. That's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. Every day that I was in Egypt, I saw the sunrise and set. Every single day. If I could travel anywhere, I would travel everywhere with you. One endless trip with occasional stops to assemble with the documentation. To assemble with the documentation. We make art of what we experience, and as what we experience is interpreted by us as art, we have come to inhabit a zone that is creatively ultra-conducive to new ideas and experiences. And then we make art of those two. Tell me a secret. Tell me a story. One of your life. Because I want you to connect with me to connect because I follow my voice because I use your ears to see your eyes to ingest your hands to feel I'm going to show you a few things and I need you to really see them Things aren't always what they seem here, so you have to be prepared. I am an animist, artist, and author 
who works with remnants of the dead and the discarded to create talismanic and totemic art like aspirin or something for the headache of life. Yes, there is a kind of humor here which is not bad. It might even be the announcement of a period when humor would be introduced, when people would not be so serious and money would not be so important and there would be time for leisure with you.